Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to attend the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to attend the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com. 18 plus begambleaware.org T's and C's apply This is a game day podcast from TalkSport Hello, this is the Game Day Podcast from TalkSport with me, Sam Matterface, the assistant editor of The Mirror, Darren Lewis, and TalkSport's football correspondent, it's Alex Crook. As we go into the Championship Playoff Final, look at the Champions League Final from a variety of different angles. We'll take you inside the stadium and tell you what it was like in the actual ground itself, outside the perimeter. We're with Global AP correspondent Rob Harris. We're going to be joined uh, by him to discuss what UEFA have been saying and what they're going to do next. We'll talk about the uh, the game itself in detail, in tactical detail, and Trent Alexander-Arnold's role in the goal. We'll talk about the future of Sadio Mane, who was mentioned on Thursday as a possible acquisition for Bayern Munich on this podcast. It now looks as if that's moved a step forward. And we'll discuss Camilla Cabello being slightly tone deaf. Uh, I don't think her reputation amongst Liverpool fans will ever be be the same. And Nottingham Forest are back in the big time. They are in the Premier League for the first time in 23 years. We'll talk about the atmosphere inside Wembley Stadium, what it means that Steve Cooper has done such a remarkable job taking them from bottom to the Premier League in the matter of nine months. Some dogged defending, some questionable penalty calls. We'll get into it all on the Game Day podcast from TalkSport. This is Game Day. Well, gentlemen, hello. Uh, thanks for joining us on this Monday morning after what was a seismic weekend across the footballing world. Um, and what a weekend it was. A little explainer before we go. Because, look, first of all, I want to say that the ethos of this podcast, you know, means that there's a bit of banter between Darren, Alex and I throughout the course of the season. We're all football fans. We've all got petty rivalries. We know that. But the fact is we are all football fans and we all travel extensively following football around the globe. And we've got a deep love of the game. And it's that deep love and the culture of football that means that we recognise when a situation is out of control. And as football fans, I think we all had witnessed terrible scenes before in the past, which meant that I, for one, and I imagine that you two did as well, had that moment on Saturday night where the feeling of unease that I was starting to feel about the whole situation unfolding in Paris actually turned into a bit of panic, a bit of worry, a bit of serious concern. And actually at one point I stopped what I was doing. I just turned to the guys that were with me and went, hold on a second. This isn't right. I'm worried about this now. And look, there will always be accusations thrown as to the cause of it, but I think it's really important that we get a full independent regulation and investigation to establish the truth of exactly what went on outside the Stade de France on Saturday night. And we do that immediately. We need to know straight away what the cause and the problems were because we were lucky, I think. We were really lucky. We were lucky that those fans 
on Saturday night that were outside that ground weren't involved in something more horrific than they, they could have been. So look, here's the plan today. We're going to get as much information about the whole thing as possible. Um, first-hand accounts of people that were in Paris and have been around the situation, the build-up to it and afterwards and what's going to happen next. We're going to look at Liverpool and how they performed on the night. We'll look at Real Madrid as well. What happens to Liverpool after this and whether or not Mane is going to leave and how that's going to impact them going forward. We'll also get stuck into the Championship playoff final uh, because Charlotte Dunker from the Times is going to join us and we're going to talk in depth about what happened on Saturday uh, and on Sunday, sorry, at the uh, the home of football, Wembley. And for example, what it means for Nottingham Forest going forward, because it's a huge club coming into the Premier League, what it means for the Premier League going forward. And of course, we will remind Darren that he'd already celebrated winning the Champions League last Monday. Um, but does that, do you want to wait for that, Crook, or do you want to bring that up now? I can't, I can't work out how desperate you are well, to get um... in on that. I'm not sure when's the best time to, to bring it up, really, but I am disappointed that Mr. Lewis isn't sat here with his uh, Liverpool Champions of Europe 2022 T-shirt because surely there was one on order uh, in preparation for what was a, a momentous occasion. And you're right, uh, Darren Lewis, when we were picking the bones out of Liverpool failing to win the Premier League, said, well, you know, they're definitely going to win the Champions League. So um, I, I, as predictions I, go, not his best. Thankfully. Thankfully, my lawyers are watching and uh, they will be able to um, take the appropriate action because I'm fairly certain I did not use that sequence of words in any podcast so far, but we will see. I am um, just actually putting in an order. I was a bit busy just now because I was putting in an order to see if I could get the European Europa Conference League 2023 t-shirt on pre-order I haven't managed to find it yet, but hopefully Manchester United will get there and do the business in the third tier European competition. And then maybe we'll be able to discuss this later. OK, you two calm yourselves down. Uh, we will first of all reflect on what was a crazy night in Paris. A bit of breaking news in the stadium. It says due to the late arrival of fans at the stadium. That's what it's saying. The late arrival of fans at the stadium, which is a, a spin. Then the match has been delayed. It's not quite saying exactly how long, but 15 min in 15 minutes time, they'll give us an update. Absolute chaos. Absolute chaos. It would be an over aggressive, and everyone started running when they were, they were throwing tea I turned around and, and there was a, a riot policeman spraying. It turned out to be CS gas. I had to even climb a fence. Uh, we were on the roof of a van and then we moved on to uh, another part of the ground that um, we, we had medical attention. The Liverpool fans did not arrive late. This was a Champions League final. They wanted to be there. There's no justification that you can find in a civilised mind why families and children would find themselves the victims of pepper gas. In 2018 in Madrid, you had Tottenham fans and Liverpool fans all in Madrid. Bigger numbers. Same problems in terms of some have tickets, some don't. It was managed beautifully, no problem. What are you expecting? When's the last time you've seen Liverpool fans run on a pitch or anything like that? It just mm. doesn't happen. I feel so ashamed, boys, when that happened on Saturday night. So ashamed for France, for Paris. This is outrageous.
Rob Harris is AP's global correspondent and was on the scene in Paris and saw tear gas being deployed at Liverpool fans and uh, described to me in quite some detail yesterday the heavy-handed tactics. We spoke to Julien Laurent as well, a senior French football correspondent who said to us, very well respected in the game, that he felt as if Liverpool fans had been targeted by French police on Saturday night. Uh, Darren Lewis was in the stadium as well too, so let's discuss it. Rob, Let's talk about what's happening now. We've seen all the minute-by-minute minute accounts, the reports from eyewitnesses, people who we trust and we know were on the scene on Saturday. But you reported late last night that UEFA and the French government are hosting a meeting on Monday morning and they're going to discuss the fallout from exactly what happened on Saturday. Just tell us the latest. What action are UEFA taking? What, what, are they, what are they saying at the moment? And where do they think the blame lies? Well, I'm still here in Paris assessing the fallout from this and you just have to glance across to French TV. I was in one of their studios this morning and they're talking about the fiasco of the Stade de France in terms of just what went wrong. So they're analysing the actions of the French police as well. Then they're not just blaming football fans coming from England and causing disruption. They're actually concerned as well about just how they deployed tear gas, how they handled the the chaos as uh, the, it unfolded with the organisation around the Stade de France. And We've not heard anything on the record from UEFA since Saturday night. Those two statements, the one heard in the stadium where they said fans got there too late. That was the English announcement, blaming them for the late kickoff in, in um, Spanish. It was actually talking about sort of security issues. Then later in the evening, we had UEFA blaming the thousands of ticketless fans. And we also had the French ministers of interior and sports also blaming the English fans. But certainly since then, there is a lot more introspection over the potential failings of the French authorities, how they managed to lose control of this situation, how they didn't have an organisation in place to be able to cope with so many fans coming to a big game. They knew it was a sellout, and yet hours before, they were struggling to filter fans in, and there was these bottlenecks and all sorts of uh, chaos, as we know, unfolded, and the treatment that Liverpool fans had to suffer at the hands of the, the French police as they indiscriminately fired tear gas and pepper spray in the faces of innocent fans. I suppose the question is then, you know, bearing in mind that it's a sellout and they've hosted World Cups, European Championships, um, Champions League finals before, why was this so difficult? I think French rugby internationals regularly that are often sold out. Why was it so difficult to get that number of people into the ground when this is something that habitually happens at this stadium? Was there an increase of numbers? And where does that come from? Is that local people, as some of the accusations have been, trying to funnel in amongst the Liverpool fans to get in to the game? Or were there, as Liverpool uh, have been accused of, got lots of fans there with, without tickets or with fake tickets? Is that is that even remotely true or is it complete made-up rubbish? Well, it's interesting. There's quite a few parts to that. There were clearly local youths who were trying to get in. They were trying to scale the fences I saw and Liverpool fans were shouting, get down, get down. They were the ones discouraging them from doing so. It is being politicised, though, locally, the local youth. And there's a sense they have been stigmatised in the Saint-Denis area and it's being exploited by some politicians from the right. So that is one sort of element as well that's been brought into this. As for the ticketless fans, well, I have ex heard experiences and Andy Robertson reflect them too. Uh, the fact he got tickets through Liverpool, gave them to family and friends, that their tickets couldn't even get them in. So there was a failing somewhere of general ticketing access. And while Liverpool distributed paper tickets, there were 
the QR barcodes that a lot of, for instance, the UEFA guests had to use, and even they weren't working. Some senior people at UEFA, their own family members were struggling to get in. So we don't know, potentially, if someone's barcode isn't working, maybe someone on the, on the turnstile was saying, that's not a real ticket, and just came to that conclusion. And I think the big thing that's being asked is, how did the French ministers and UEFA jump form their conclusion so swiftly mm. uh, on Saturday night. Darren, what, what what was your experience inside the stadium? Well, actually, it was my experience outside the stadium that is still on my mind, really, because it was leaving the stadium at the end of the evening that I was caught up in a massive crush. It was, uh, I was on the side of the Real Madrid fans. I was there actually working for TV rather than for, for, for print and um I was leaving, I was in amongst lots of Real Madrid fans and they were sort of pushed into a bottleneck as as Rob was just suggesting. And it was terrifying because all of us have been to hundreds of matches over the years and normally crowds are managed in a relatively sensible way. But these crowds were pushed or directed, if you like, into a situation where if there was a medical emergency, if there was even the slightest hint of panic, I dread to think what would have happened Mm. on Saturday night. There was only one way to go. Turning back was simply not an option. Underneath you was just water because obviously there is a bridge that goes from the Stade de France over to the area that divides into all of the main roads. And it was just bizarre. Now, I've got to tell you also, earlier in the evening when I was coming into the stadium, it was a very similar situation to the one that you've heard lots about thought you've probably seen lots of images on social media of where fans were all pushed into small, tight areas where they simply couldn't move. The crowd management by the French was just so poor. And again, you had to squeeze through. Again, when I got through, because again, I was came through on the, on the side of the Real Madrid fans for various reasons. But when I got through... I was wearing a suit and one or two people believe maybe I was in some sort of official capacity working for UEFA and they came up and they said, look, those fans are trying to get through with fake tickets. And they were pointing at their own fellow Real Madrid fans. It also, this was nothing at all to do with Liverpool fans. This is an aspect you probably haven't heard too much about, but they were pointing out some of their own fans saying, look, they are trying to get through with fake tickets. Uh, they'd taken photographs and were showing on phones or whatever. And we all, the four of us, alerted um, myself and the three fans that were speaking to me, the stewards, and but they were overwhelmed. And I think the entire management of that situation by the French authorities was just poor overall. Just one note very quickly as well on what Rob was saying about some of the local use, because it is true to say that some of the local use were trying to get in. You've got to imagine, and, and this is why it's worth looking at the bigger picture. The Stade de France is built in a deprived area of Saint-Denis. Uh, there are lots of people. It is seen as a kind of metaphorical two fingers up to the people who live in that area. There's mm. this huge lavish party that takes place routinely while they basically are left in economic uh, uh, poverty, basically. And so on occasion, some of the people involved will take the opportunity to disrupt. And Rob's right. Politically, some people will use this in negative terms. But the fact is that there is a bigger picture to be addressed 
along with all of the other elements that we've seen so much of yeah. in the newspapers. And the one thing that is a common denominator through it all is that the French police reacted, acted, planned it out very, very poorly indeed. And it's not true to say their usual thing, blame the British. The British on this occasion were not at fault. Well, look, Liverpool fans have been stigmatised for a long time by rival fans. And that, I think, is another reason why it's so important that we have a proper investigation, expose of what happens. And I, I don't think it's adequate for us to accept the UEFA narrative, whatever it may be, because ultimately they made false statements initially. So telling the truth, especially in regards to Liverpool fans, absolutely matters. It matters big style because of what's happened in the past. So we need a, a reputable report. We need something that we all can trust and not just to prove that Liverpool fans were innocent of wrongdoing. I think there's enough in terms of colloquial and um, internet, social media and evidence and video footage and camera phone footage, plus the accounts of the untrusted journalists who we know and witnessed it. But actually it's to restore the reputation or should I say preserve the reputation of Liverpool and English football fans because you only need to look at social media in the aftermath to see what rival fans do. They use it as a stick to beat them with. Now, maybe that's because they don't understand what happened. So it is our job as journalists, as people who, like you guys, who have been on the scene and knew what was happening from first-hand accounts to relate accurate information. At this moment in time, Crook, as a journalist, it is important that we get that truth. Yeah, and I have to say, I think Talk Sport did, did a good job of that on Saturday night. I was watching here in Portugal uh, on television. I was watching a British feed. Uh, they were more interested in, in Liverpool's high line. They were in, in terms of really relaying uh, some quite disturbing events outside the stadium. Uh, Talksport did a good job of that. Credit to Adrian Durham, Jim Prowse, and producer Declan McCarthy. I know put himself in harm's way, and I think actually was a victim of, of some of the pepper spraying. Um, so, so credit to them. But I think you, you're right to highlight some of the, the social media tribalism from rival fans. That for me was one of the more uh, unpalatable elements of the weekend, of the weekend, and of the scenes. Just fans jumping to, to tarnish Liverpool. And I think actually Liverpool fans deserve a huge amount of credit that the situation didn't deteriorate. The fact that they managed to keep a calm head, despite the fact for me they were being provocated um, by the French police, because had they have reacted, it could easily uh, have turned into a far more serious situation. And I'll just share with you my own experiences of covering the Europa League final in Seville when Rangers fans and, and their Frankfurt counterparts were impeccably be behaved. I was in McDonald's uh, late at night, the night oh, before sure. the game. They were overwhelmed because there were too many people ordering. There weren't enough staff. They closed the McDonald's, leaving a lot of people without their food and without a refund. There were 20 riot police who shut down a McDonald's. And again, they were, for me, they were trying to provocate um, the Rangers supporters who, again, kept a cool head. But I think, again, that's just a snapshot. Uh, maybe it's because of the reputation the British fans have. But a lot of local police authorities don't treat football fans and don't treat British fans in particular with the respect they deserve. And I think quite often they antagonise the situation. That can and, easily have happened. And, and obviously weekend. a lot of us have travelled in Europe as well. Is this something that is, uh, it's not something that's new, by the way. I think so, it's something that's happened over the course of even the last 15 years. I've been travelling for a long time with, with uh, uh, Premier League football clubs and you, you encounter this hostility quite a lot, actually. We had it in Frankfurt when we went with West Ham very recently. I've had it with Everton 
uh, on tour in Lille or, or or elsewhere. I've had it with Chelsea fans. It happens. There's sometimes the local fans react to them. Sometimes it's the police. Sometimes the high jinks that the the, the 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 English supporters get up to actually is alien to the local police force, and they react in a way that they maybe shouldn't. So, Rob, let me ask you whether or not you think that it is actually something that the continental police forces need to try or the the football family needs to understand what it's like to police big groups of supporters to whether or not you believe that the British supporters need to be slightly different about the way they behave because of the reputation that they have. And three, what do you think is going to happen when we get to Qatar? Well, it does really shine a quite a spotlight on the way French police do go for this sort of tear gas first approach. The fact they were spraying pepper spray right in the face of some fans who just look frustrated. They didn't look angry or provocative in any way towards the police. And yet this is their means of dispersing a crowd and it can inflame things. We saw it in 2016 as well at the Euros. Of course, there were issues with England fans and with the Russian fans, but there were many moments when actually there were fans just drinking. I always felt some of the situations did exacerbate and because of the use of tear gas. And we saw that on Saturday night, it was being fired from within the inner perimeter, right next to the media door. Uh, And it was being fired outside beyond the fences at a distance. And the game was already on at this point. I mean, there were some youths around. It was a means of dispersal. Whereas I think maybe in England, we have police horses. I think police try to use their voice, try to actually disperse a crowd in that way. And, you know, there will be, concerns always here I think about that and that's something for the authorities to look at in their investigation as for Qatar I think it'll be maybe a not as many fans going there are more challenges the distance the cost the limited accommodation uh, perhaps the way you can actually act within the country is it a warning for fans is it a warning for, for English fans going out there that you know already you're in a situation where there are preconceived ideas of how you're going to behave so when you go to the World Cup if you decide to go to the World Cup there is every single chance that people will be looking at you more closely than they'll be looking at anybody else and I'm not saying that because I think the Qatari uh, police or whoever is going to be running the security in Qatar have, uh, you know, have got a, a reputation. I'm saying it because it seems to be that wherever English fans go, automatically the police force believe there's going to be trouble. Yeah, but, but, well, but can I just come in there, Sam? Because I, I think you're making a little bit of a leap and I wonder if it might be... We've heard two stories look, from two finals. You're right, you're right. Two stories from two finals. But let's not kid ourselves. We, our British fans were innocent on Saturday and were targeted by heavy-handed French police who have a reputation, a negative reputation, long-standing. Our fans, of all, you know, British fans have a long history as well. You know, Rob, you were in Marseille. You know, many of us have been in situations involving British fans in the past where we have had issues we, our fans wrecked our national stadium last year. Let's mm-hmm. not kid ourselves about that. So there are truths that we have to confront ourselves. It doesn't mean that the fans who were in France on Saturday should be targeted, maligned, no, no, no. Implicated because they, saying, they, you know, it? that's, that's not, not what they, that's and not it what also, I'm saying. But what I'm saying what, is, is but the, the point the you're making is about Qatar spreads, and about how it? we might be targeted by, by, by Qatari fans. And the, the, the brutal truth is that 
in the eyes of people who don't want to take each situation on its merits, an example, Saturday, where there were fans just wanting to go and enjoy a, a game, a once-in-a-lifetime occasion, you know, they, some countries' police forces will tar everybody with the same brush, which is not fair. No, it isn't. And, and that's thankfully, that's the exactly video vindicates those Liverpool fans who were at the game on Saturday. Because in the past, when it would be their word against the authorities, people would believe the authorities. But now we have people like Rob who were there. We've got the video. We've got the audio. We've got the anecdotal evidence that corroborates the video that we saw in social media. So there's no place to hide for the French police. And that's why it's really important that we get an independent investigation. That's why UEFA are held, have to be held to account for the way they've organised this uh, this final. Actually, that's the other the thing. They take, UEFA well. take the lead from the French police. The UEFA yeah. are on the inside. The French police are on the outside. They are trying to justify their actions. So they say to the UEFA, oh, it was it British fans and they came over and they are not given a representative account of what but, but UEFA also have a responsibility. Many UEFA, UEFA also have a responsibility, Darren, to be like us as journalists. We don't just make a, a statement to everybody once uh, having one side of the, the information. We actually consider both sides of the information, double source information, before putting out a statement that is mm. as inflammatory as turning around and saying that uh, fans turned up late or they turned up with fake tickets. That's a big thing to say. You should only say that if you're incredibly sure of it. And mm. they clearly weren't. And they didn't take the information from all the sources, just the one, as you said, the French police. Uh, Rob, we know you've got to go very quickly. What do you expect will happen next? Well, uh, we won't expect any swift report necessarily. These things take time. We saw with the FA's report into the Wembley disorder. But uh, I think there'll need to be some sort of word, particularly new word from UEFA on what went wrong from the authorities and also in terms of a more thorough account in terms of Liverpool fans as well, because the last word from them is just completely blaming them effectively mm. and what went on a Saturday night. So in terms of a more thorough detailed account, and this is a week when you wait for come back to London as well, because on Wednesday night, it's the European champions against the South American champions, Italy against Argentina and a game organized by uh, UEFA and common ball. So all the UEFA big wigs are descending on London this week as well. Well, these are the nights when heroes are made, where history will be written, where the moments will be forever etched upon the mind's eye materialise. The red against the white, Liverpool against Real Madrid. The 2022 Champions League final is underway. Thiago playing it forward towards Mane here. It's nil-nil. Mane trying to work the angle right, but he's oh, oh, wow. tipped onto the post. And it comes back into the hands oh. of Courtois. It's another magnificent save. Rail on the front foot. Valverde across the face of goal. And it's steered in by Vinicius, who found some space at the far post. And it's one perceptive potent cross. Liverpool switched off at the back. Vinicius sweeps it in. And Real Madrid lead Liverpool by a golden L. Great touch. Salah's got it. Salah! Good save What a again. save again that is. And straight away, three Real Madrid players converge on Courtois and jump on him as if he's just scored the winning penalty in a shootout. That's tremendous goalkeeping. Oh, it's a free kick. No time to take it. And Real Madrid have beaten Liverpool in the final again. The Real Madrid substitutes race onto the pitch. The Liverpool players, some slump, some turned dejectedly, some walk towards their supporters away to our right-hand side. 
This has just been one of those days for Liverpool. Finishes the winner. Tears for those dressed in red. Um, let's move on to the game itself then. Thibaut Courtois produced a magnificent goalkeeping display on Saturday night in Paris. And Crook, now he wants your respect. <laughs> that was strange for me um, because I don't remember him being particularly disrespected. I think most people uh, realised he did a very good job um, as Chelsea goalkeeper. I think he was pressed on it in, in the uh, post-match press conference. And it turns out it was one magazine who didn't put him in the top 10 goalkeepers in the world. But listen... If he's used that as motivation uh, for an outstanding performance, arguably one of the greatest Champions League final performances uh, by a goalkeeper, uh, then Real Madrid will be very grateful for that. Because let's be honest, uh, he did keep Liverpool at bay almost single-handedly. I mean, it was an inspirational performance, but strange motivation for it. Yes, uh, he always has been a very good goalkeeper. He's just not a great character. He's a bit sulky. He's a bit moody. He's a bit demanding of praise. And he agitated for a move from Chelsea after they binned off Petr Cech for him. And he moaned constantly the whole time that he was at Chelsea, which was his parent club. He'd been in Madrid with Atletico beforehand uh, because he didn't like living in London. He just didn't like being in London. He didn't want to be there. From the minute that he arrived, he wanted to go back and play in Spain again. His PR actually is terrible, uh, but he is a very good goalkeeper as Jota, Mane uh, and uh, Salah all all found out during the the game. Um, talk to me about Trent Alexander-Arnold, um, uh, Darren, because he did an interview that will forever become a meme in the build-up to the game. To quote uh, the quote to Donald McRae of the Guardian, which became the headline in the Guardian on Saturday, was "I always feel I can see things that others can't." Now we as journalists <laughs> are delighted that this kid has got so much personality. We're delighted that he has the freedom to express himself. We like talking to him. It's good copy for us. But in hindsight, that was a piece he probably should have done after a big Champions League win rather than before one because he was at fault for the goal on 58 minutes. And I watched it back several times today. He gets sucked into the middle and not once does he look over his shoulder. Now, maybe that's because he can see other things that people can't. But actually, he didn't see Vinicius coming down the left-hand side to tap in the winner. He's behind you. See, I, you know, I, I, I almost think, and I've already seen criticism of him since the weekend, and it's the trouble with us in England that we have top-class talent like Trent, and we don't appreciate it. You no, know, we I love. We think fact. he's brilliant. We think he's yeah, absolutely but now we're brilliant. Him, but, but you're talking about memes and that he shouldn't have said what he said. You know, but the fact is that he's a guy who's won all there is to win domestically. His confidence is sky high, and his belief that he's managed to get from playing within a top-class side, playing for a, an elite manager, is also sky high. So why should he not back himself, talk himself up? Every time you go into a football match, yes, there is that element of jeopardy that could catch you out. But because of that, are you going to play safe? You know, are you going to stop being the person you are and use the kind of language and, 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 and admit that you do have confidence in your ability not to let things go past you. Yes, of course your words can catch you out. Every time you ask me for a prediction on this show, or I ask you guys, you know, all of us could be caught out. But the fact is that I don't want Trent Alexander-Arnold to stop believing in himself and stop speaking the way he's been speaking, because it isn't arrogance, it's confidence. And when you have that confidence, you'll do it again. You'll say it again. And he should. 
I think yeah. it's when he stops believing that that we need to start worrying. I, I listen. I completely concur with what you're saying, and I do agree that actually he is he, obviously a, a great talent that has so much to give to the English game. But I also think that it was pretty clear. And if you listen to the Thursday preview podcast, I was saying the one big problem that Liverpool have got to avoid is what happened in Valdebebos in the quarterfinal last year when Trent seemed to get exposed by Vinicius's pace in behind. That was a problem. So you would have thought, Crook, that they would have been aware of that going into the game. And one of the things they would have said to Trent beforehand is just be careful of him stealing a march on your back shoulder because he's always likely to do that. Yeah, I think they were aware of it because Liverpool at times were doubling up on, on Vinicius uh, Junior. And in fairness, Real Madrid were aware of it because it was the ball they were looking for for much of the game. It, it, the long ball over the top to try and exploit that pace. I, I do think it's a problem. I do uh, think I it's a question for you. I just want to ask this question. Are we talking about Trent's failings, really? Or are we talking about, in Vinicius Junior, one of the great talents in world and European football? Because Good point. This is an outstanding footballer, but our instinct straight away is to deride one of our footballers. And that's what concerns me the most. No, I don't think that's the case. I think actually what you do is, is when you watch a football match, you look at the, the, the pluses and the minuses and you turn around and you say, this was a good performance. This person switched off at a vital moment. We started the whole uh, section by talking about how great the goalkeeper was. He was in, it was imperious. And the fact is, is that, you know, we're doing this a little bit after uh, the event now. So the big headline is, is that Thibaut Courtois saved Real Madrid from an onslaught because I think Liverpool were actually the better team across the game. Although, you know, the, the biggest chance, that key moment, that that top level section of, uh, of two or three seconds was when Trent Alexander made a mistake would actually cost them a goal. And, and that goal proved pivotal. Now, there's other failings as well. I actually thought, and listen to Arsene Wenger, what he said, you know, how much of it was down to fatigue over the course of the, the 90 minutes. Because he said, and this is a quote from Wenger, you felt that Salamane, the guys that made the difference in games on a regular basis, didn't have the same freshness, the same belief that they can make the difference in this particular game. So I, I don't think it's about sort of just saying uh, that because... I do think you're allowed to say someone's had a bad game when they've had a bad game or they've made a mistake when they've made a mistake. I don't think there's anyone getting away from that. I don't think we're here just to be PR uh, gurus for, for, the, for the players that are in the England team. We're here to explain what happens when things go wrong. And there, you know, there was a deficiency there. They made a mistake, so we pointed it out. I don't think that's unfair. And I think if, no, you're, looking I, at, if you're looking at options at right back for the World Cup, for me, and I think Gareth Southgate agrees with this because he's left Trent Alexander on it, Arnold out of squads in the past. Reese James is a better all-round option than Trent Alexander-Arnold. Trent Alexander-Arnold as a forward force is a phenomenon. Defensively, I think he still gets has questions to answer. And that was another question in which he came up short of the weekend. That is just the case, it's about, Darren. It's about, it's about nuance, isn't it? I mean, not everything is black and white. Ultimately, everybody can see that he's a brilliant footballer and he's great on the ball, especially going forward. He creates an unbelievable number of chances and his assist record is through the roof. It's absolutely outstanding. But in key moments in big games against a team that won 13 European Cups, you've got to make sure that you're switched on if you're the right back. You know, Liverpool have won three out of three... Sorry, Liverpool have lost... Three matches out of 63, well, 62 before Saturday, hmm. um, all season, in all competitions. Now, 
I'm sorry, but when you got, if you have a right back who can't defend, that cannot be the case. Now, we can make these, and, and to, to be honest that's with you, that's not I what we're agree. saying. That's no, not what we're saying. No, no, we're hang saying. on, hang on, hang on, hang on, Sam, hang on. My point is this: I agree with you. We are not here to to trumpet and give great PR for our players, regardless of whatever else. We are here to analyze as we see it. But in my opinion, part of that analysis is sometimes saying that it might not be that he's made a mistake. It might just be that the player who's taken advantage of him being slower to react is a top-class talent. And I think Vinicius Junior is, and he's shown it time after time. And I don't think we should... Saturday was just a, a, a moment, a slip. But if you look at Trent's body of work, I don't think you can suddenly turn around and start saying you wouldn't pick him for England teams. One of the most forward-thinking, attacking England teams we've ever seen. I've seen some horrendous England teams where you wouldn't even dream of allowing a fullback to bomb forward. And yet, in this England team with so much midfield and attacking talent, why wouldn't you pick a, a, a right back who can maraud forward, who will more often than not take advantage of the failings down his side to cross... The, deliveries in that our forward line would eat for breakfast. Oh, come on, let's not get too carried away. So it was it was a bad mistake. But I think Trent is still a fantastic footballer and we should I don't absolutely think anyone disagrees. So but if you're picking your first choice England eleven for the opening game of the World Cup, do you pick Trent Alexander Arnold or do you pick Reese James? He's thinking about it. Yes. Yes. Well and run one of the best teams and reach the Champions League final and the first title for Liverpool in 30 years. Absolutely, yes, I would. Okay, Sadio Mane has talked about or has let it be known that he might want to move on in the summer. And how much of an opportunity is that for Liverpool, actually? I mean, everyone talks about the fact that it's going to be the the, the sort of breaking up of this wonderful attacking force. But actually, Liverpool have had a habit over the last few years of replacing those players before they've even gone. You know, for a long time, it was Mane, Firmino and Salah and nobody else who could play anywhere near that front three. And now all of a sudden, you've got Jota and Luis Diaz. They've done brilliantly in sort of preempting this strike. It's a team that looked at Mbappe not too long ago. There's, that's been admitted by Kylian Mbappe himself, but they couldn't make the sums work. So is this an opportunity? Can Liverpool use this as an opportunity in terms of recruitment, or is it a major blow to lose Sadio Mane, should that be the case? Crook? Well, he's a talented player, um, and he's been central to the successes they've had, the ones that Darren has already alluded to. However, uh, part of being a great team, a great football club, a great manager, is being able to to regenerate. We saw uh, Sir Alex Ferguson did that, built four teams at Manchester United. Jurgen Klopp has signed this new long-term contract. He will have to do the same. I think it was always going to be the case they would lose one of Salah or Mane this summer. I think if you gave them a choice, if you gave Liverpool fans a choice, uh, they would have rather kept Salah than Mane. That looks like it will be the case now. Clearly, he's hankering for this move to Bayern Munich. I think there's still some work to be done in terms of the figures and in terms of bringing in another body uh, for Liverpool to replace him with. But it's a good challenge, and one that Jurgen Klopp will embrace. Having said that, there aren't a, a huge amount of options out there in terms of players proven at the top level that they could come in and and, uh, and get to fill that yeah, void. Yeah, that's what you would have said before they recruited Luis Diaz as well. Um, one other final word on the, on the final itself. Um, Camilla Cabello, uh, her deleted tweet. What do, we, what do we think of that? What do we think of the performance? It was just incongruous as to what was going on outside. I thought it was frankly ridiculous that they bothered to do an opening ceremony after all that had gone beforehand. But um, the, the, the rather odd sort of tone-deaf tweet that she sent out 
basically complaining that the the supporters of both clubs had decided to sing their own club's anthems during her rather you know unnecessary performance she, i think she had to she had to delete that very quickly and then redo the pr and then try to make it look like it was oh no i had a great time really <laughs> yeah read the room read the room read i the mean room. i think everyone had come to watch was uh, uh, i know the spanish were calling it a super final and it was it, 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 in prospect obviously uh, events have overshadowed it but i don't think they came to see her with the best win in the world with no disrespect uh, senorita I feel for you. Right, okay. Uh, let's get to the championship playoff final. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertzen the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertzen the Channelized Bingbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. And there's the full-time whistle and it's time for Nottingham Forest to party like it's 1999. Despite their worst start to a season in 108 years, Nottingham Forest, the club of Brian Clough, of Stuart Pearce, of Gary Bertels, of Archie Gemmell, of Des Walker, are making a return to the Premier League for the first time in a generation. What a day for Steve Cooper and Nottingham Forest. His side cling on to a Wembley win and promotion to the Premier League under a weight of second-half pressure uh, from Huddersfield Town in the Championship playoff final. And they get the golden ticket. Uh, I was at Wembley for this game. The Times Midlands correspondent Charlotte Dunker was there as well. And she's going to talk through the big talking points of the, uh, the weekend. And I suppose the appointment of John Moss will come under scrutiny in just a moment. We'll talk about those decisions uh, in a few minutes, Charlotte. And uh, first of all, let's just talk about the context, though, of Nottingham Forest, a club steeped in a load of history from the 80s and early 90s, being back in the Premier League for the first time in 23 years and the job that Steve Cooper did. Yeah, absolutely remarkable. If you go back to when he was appointed, we were bottom of the table. And I think if you'd spoken to any ardent Nottingham Forest fan, if you said, oh, they're going to get promoted, I think maybe they w- would have think, thought, yeah, right, but he's gone slowly about it. He's talked about when he was appointed, the first aim was to get them out of the relegation zone. 
he managed that. Then they started pushing up the table and then they really narrowly just missed out on automatic promotion. And I think you just needed to look around Wembley yesterday to see what it really meant to them fans. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but some of them were in tears because they've some of them there have never seen their team in the top flight. And you talk about the history of the club and sometimes people argue they're too big a club to be playing in the championship. Well, they're back where they believe they belong and all credit to Steve Cooper, although he would say it's not just him that's done it. Yes, he's very much the collegiate manager, isn't he? There's no hierarchy here. We're all just good friends and we're getting over the line. Uh, Crookie, where do you place uh, the achievement and what does it do to the Premier League? You talked about the Premier League brand last week. I think he did say brand, didn't he? Darren, I'm sure he, pro- he said Premier League brand. He stopped uh, it. Yeah, yeah, he said he said he's talking about Burnley and saying that it's better for the Premier League brand that Leeds were up. Is it better for the Premier League brand that Nottingham Forest are up? I think so. Um, I think for the reasons that you've suggested, they're a club uh, renowned, not just in this country, but of course uh, overseas, what they achieved in Europe um, under Brian Clough, 23 years. It, it's too long uh, for a club of Nottingham Forest stature not to grace the, the top flight. I think there'll be a, a brilliant addition um, having said that, and you've already mentioned it, I think Huddersfield will feel very agree with those two penalty calls in the second half. I think Forrest, uh, based on what we've seen this season, will need to, to strengthen in the summer because as much as it's a wonderful job that Steve Cooper has done, I think they had four points uh, when he took over. Obviously, they accumulated more than any other team in the championship under his tenure. They were unlucky not to get automatic promotion. But maybe his biggest test is still to come because making that jump from the Championship to the Premier League, particularly uh, for playoff winners when you have uh, maybe uh, less time to prepare, is never easy. So I think we're going to find out just how good Steve Cooper is next season. But he's done a remarkable job to this point. Jim White ambushed Evangelos uh, Maranakis in the uh, in one of the suites above the uh, uh, Wembley Stadium because he was it was it was out of the way and not in the Royal Box. He was he was in a special suite all on his own. And um, he says, Charlotte. Get ready for trophies. With me, nothing is impossible. If you look at my life, nothing is impossible. And it isn't, right? This is a guy who's written a pop song in Greek and they've got five and a half million uh, YouTube hits as a result of that. He's a shipping magnet. He owns Nottingham Forest. I mean, he, he seems like everything he touches turns to gold. I mean, fair enough. You, you want them to go in with confidence. But I think when Steve Cooper was asked in his press conference yesterday if... Forest are ready for the Premier League. He didn't want to talk about it. He said, <laughs> can I just go on holiday first? So given that they're talking about potentially going in there and winning the league, I think I want them to calm down a little bit. But as we just touched on there, I think one of the biggest issues they've got is going to be getting players in on a permanent basis because five players who have been key, I think they've made 144 appearances between them, 20 goals over 30 assists. They're all lone players. So they're going to have to work out what they're doing with them. Are they going to stay on a permanent basis? Do they want to go back to their um, parent clubs? Um, so they've got a lot of issues to sort out. And if you look at how key they've been, I think that's going to be one of the main issues for Forest is what is their, what is their team going to look like? I believe they're going to have money to spend, but I think the recruitment and keeping those players on board is going to be key to how they start next season. Yeah, Brennan Johnson, obviously the target of quite a lot of interest, Darren. And Jed Spence as well, who's been brilliant at right back. He couldn't resist the temptation to give Neil Warnock a bit on social media afterwards either, could he? No, he couldn't. But, you know, I think he's more renowned for what he does on the pitch. And I know a lot of big clubs are looking at him. He's a very accomplished 
player for his age and I think they may well lose him this summer he'll have obviously a choice to make because had they not gone up it would have been far easier to pluck him away from Forest than it will be now um, he was on loan as, as yeah, I understand he's on, it he's on loan from Middlesbrough yeah he belongs Middlesbrough. to Middlesbrough yeah. but it's a commitment you would imagine would want to be with Forest now that they've gone up but I think there'll be a, a couple of other clubs who'll be uh, maybe presenting somewhat attractive options to him. I'm more concerned, I've got to tell you, um, Sam, with if they stay up, clearly Crook didn't believe they could do it. So if they do stay up, I would like Crook to sing that Maranakis song that he's written in Greek. I'd like him to yeah. sing it here on the pod. Yeah. Will you do that, Crook? I'm not sure I said they wouldn't stay up. I just said this it would be a huge challenge as it will be for Fulham and Bournemouth and any team coming out of the championship. But if you want me to sing at the end of the season, if they stay up, I will do that for you. I'm not sure it's going to add many listeners. In fact, it might lose us a few listeners. So that's up to you. <laughs> Can I just say very quickly, I mean, before you move on, I think what they do need for us is not to dilute the team spirit that's got them to where they are. We saw when Fulham came up a few years back and they bought some of that 12, 14 players. That yeah. won't be... And I can understand why they did that. Looking back, they felt they needed Premier League quality, but sometimes it, there's a lot to be said for retaining that spirit and and uh, the... the, the the invincible spirit, if you like, that lifted them from where they were. 46 of the first 52 days they were in the relegation zone and they started to build, as you've been saying, Charlotte. If they can maybe get four or five decent players, experienced players, a lot of free transfers around that could do a good job, uh, maybe a few players that have been written off too soon. If they can get maybe four or five players that don't think they're doing Forrest a favour but are committed to what Forrest are trying to do, I think they could be an interesting proposition next season. Okay, listen, um, let's put the stats on it. And this is where everybody who's uh, wearing Gary Baldy red gets really annoyed because of the last 20 teams to win a championship playoff, half of them have been relegated in the first season. Five of the last eight who have come up through the playoffs have gone down. Palace, Swansea and Brentford are the ones that have bucked that trend. Um, but Nottingham Forest, with a bit of backing, they've got a good solid defence. They've got, um, if they can keep hold of some of their better players, and that's great. And J James Garner is one of those. I know Crook's not the biggest of fans. He's a Manchester United player who's been on loan at Nottingham Forest. He created the, the winning goal yesterday with a terrific delivery. And actually, he created another great chance for Ryan Yates in the game with a wonderful swirling free kick. Um, it wasn't a great game overall, though, was it, Charlotte? I mean, let's be completely honest about it. I mean, sometimes these playoff finals are you know, full of tension. This one certainly was. Huddersfield didn't have a shot on target in the game. And I had breakfast this morning with one or two town fans. And they said, well, look, do you know what? I don't actually remember us creating enough in the game, to be honest. One of them, isn't it? You can't, I know I can understand why they're disappointed, but walking away from there knowing they didn't have a shot on target, I get mm -hmm. they're going to be frustrated about the penalty decisions that didn't go in their way. But they should have created something to... Bryce Samba didn't have anything to do. So I think when they look at it by, like that, they're going to be frustrated that they didn't do enough. But I think that's sort of what we expected. I expected them to go there and be tight defensively, play with that three, three back five, if you like, um, and just allow Forrest to attack them. But I think for both sides, the performance wasn't that great. Steve Cooper admitted it. His team have played a lot better this season. Um, but the main thing for them is that they got over the line through their own goal. And like you say, I don't think it's a spectacle that we're going to remember for, for all time for um, the way they played, but for the atmosphere and everything off the pitch, it will definitely be one that the Forest fans remember for a really long time.
Okay, let's do it then. Here we go. Let's have a look at VAR and the penalty decisions, the two defining moments of the championship playoff final. Um, obviously, the first one, Colback has admitted that he caught uh, Harry Toffolo, who was booked for some simulation, but the contact was probably minimal. The second one, a tangle of legs, possibly a bit of a push from, uh, um, from uh, I'm getting my mind mixed up now, Max Lowe on uh, Lewis O'Brien. Um, and that resulted in not even a check from the VAR, Paul Tierney. Tell me what you think then. Crook? I thought they were both penalties. I thought they were both clear-cut penalties. I think John Moss, as I've said on this podcast before, uh, is a referee for whom retirement has come too late. I think it was an odd appointment. I've spoken to people from rival clubs who think the same. This is not a gold watch that you're giving someone as a farewell present. This is a game that's worth more than £100 million to two teams. And he wasn't up to it. And I, I can't believe that VAR didn't recommend that he looked at the monitor for the first one. And I can't believe that VAR dismissed the second claim so quickly. I, I thought they were both clear cut. I really did. OK, uh, Darren, just very quickly, yes or no, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with, with, with Crook. I mean, if you, listen, in general terms, if you can look at the VAR system and see that it's fit for purpose at the moment, then in the words of the great Les Dennis, I'll give you the money myself because <laughs> it's so, so poor. Wasn't that uh, Les Dawson? <laughs> I think it was before his time, actually, family fortunes. Um, but I, look, I, I just think that we've seen too many of the kind of situation where our eyes are telling us one thing and those guys within the refereeing fraternity whose mates are in the VAR chair uh, are seeing another. And I feel a lot for Huddersfield because I, I, I totally agree with Crook. They did look penalties to me. OK. Uh, uh, Charlotte, go on then. I, a yes or no? Yeah, I agree for both. I The thing that baffled me is that they didn't even check the second one on the VAR, mm. I don't think. And this is the first time that it's been used for... Uh, the championship playoff final. So you would have thought they'd even gone to it. So um, the, the uh, Huddersfield boss wasn't too happy at the end, but to be fair to him, he said he's just got, has got to accept it. Although he said he doesn't even know what the point of VAR is. So sums it all up really, doesn't it? Okay. Um, so are you ready for an unpopular view? Right. Let's start with the, the Premier League uh, guidance, which they have given us and told us why these events did not warrant overturning. The second one, they said there wasn't enough evidence to overturn it um, and the, the guy's out of, uh, out of control of the ball. Right, we'll get to that in just a second. The first one, let's go to the first penalty. We've got to put that in context with the instruction that the game gave the refereeing body in the summer. In 2021, that season, we had 124 Premier League penalties given and that, was a record and a record by some margin. The season before was 92 and it hovers around that zone. That's quite high end. It's usually late 80s, early 90s with one or two spikes up and down over the last 20 years. But 124 was breaking a record with a 10% increase by some margin. That's a big spike. So after the Premier League consulted with the stakeholders, captains, managers, coaches, referees, they decided they didn't want penalties that were given for minimal contact. One of the key phrases that keeps being trotted out in refereeing circles is, we don't give seen and given penalties anymore because the game said they didn't want cheap penalties. Um, I do think, however, that had John Moss given the penalty for the first one, it would still have been correct for VAR not to intervene. 
because the decision could have gone either way. So whatever the on-field decision was, it's not clear and obvious for the VAR to get involved with, right? That's the first one. Second one, tangle of legs, but for me, definite penalty. I'm surprised it isn't reviewed. In fact, it's not even properly checked by the VAR, let alone recommending John Moss to go over and look at a monitor. But John Moss doesn't give it. The assistant is really close. He doesn't give it. Paul Tierney, who's in the VAR hub, doesn't give it. So you would suggest that four people, because you've got the AVAR in there as well, with refereeing qualifications who have reviewed that situation and have a better idea and understanding of the law, its implications and explanations than we do, would know what they were doing. You would expect that. The PGMOL say this, O'Brien wasn't in control of the ball when the contact, the tangle came, i.e. the ball had gone, it was coming together. Personally, personally, I think O'Brien is in control of the ball. He is fouled. There's clear contact in the back of the leg by Max Lowe and the defender doesn't play the ball. So it's clumsy and it's a foul for me. But they're the explanations as much as I can do to get into the mind of the VAR and the referees and try and explain why they weren't given. Crook, you better take over here because I know you're just going to bash the referees. Well, it highlights the problem that we've discussed uh, for a long time on this podcast. You can bemoan the technology, but it isn't a technology failure. It's a failure, as you've just mentioned, on behalf of the people in charge of the technology, uh, the people in charge on the pitch. <laughs> I-, I was watching on a... A small screen in a bar in Portugal, I call penalty straight away. If yeah, I that doesn't mean that, you're right. No, but it, it doesn't mean you're right well, because you think it's a penalty. Because well, ultimately, there's well, no, 95%, which one? What, the first 95%, one? 95% of the people that I've spoken to think they were both penalties. They certainly I, think the second one's a penalty. Are you not thinking about recency bias in the fact that they've told you from the beginning, the guidance at the beginning of the year was to get rid of contact? I said in the commentary box with Ian Holloway and David Connolly, they were divided. One of them said penalty for the first one, one of them said no. I thought they were clear. I, I really do. And um, I don't understand why John Moss was given that game as a retirement present. Charlotte, have you got any sort of, once listening to those explanations, have you got any sort of sympathy for the, the referees? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> and if you go to that description as well, where you say, oh, their idea is, you know, they're not going to give penalties where all we've given this in the past. I think the whole season, the big one of the biggest issues of VAR is there seems to be no consistency about the decisions that are made and the penalties that are given. So that explanation for me doesn't really sit right. And I think... For me, it was the it was the fact that the second one they didn't properly review it. If yeah. they'd gone, if they'd gone to VAR and it was looked at, and then they decided on all the probabilities for the reasons that you've just said that that wasn't a penalty, then at least you know they've looked at it. But when the technology is there and they're using it for the first time in this fixture, what is the point in having it there if they're not going to utilize it and go to the screens? I'm not saying John Moss had to go to the screen, but the, the VAR to check it properly because mm-hmm. from how we understand it, that wasn't even checked. What is there the... any suspicion, Sam, or any suggestion that maybe Paul Tierney, the VAR, didn't want to undermine John Moss on his farewell appearance? Is there a possibility of that at all? Well, the possibility it, it exists in, in, in so far as he obviously is mandated to go with the on-field decision 
unless there is clear evidence of overturning that on-field decision. Now, I don't know what the communication was, and they're in constant communication at all times, right? So if John Moss is going over and he's looked at it and said, no penalty, tangle of legs for me, waves it away. The assistant says, yeah, I, I agree, John, no, no penalty. Paul Tierney's got to be particularly certain that they are both wrong before he presses the button and says, hold on a second, I think you should definitely have a look at it. And I do think that that is... That is something that does need looking at. I'm not saying that this is a suggestion of impropriety in, in this case, but I do think it's very difficult when you've got a group of referees all trained together, separate the duties between on-field referees and being in a, a VAR hub, working together and apart, where you've got to be in a situation where you've got to tell another referee that you might you know, have in a different situation in two weeks somewhere, he's the VAR and you're out on the field of play, that you actually mate, you've made a, a mistake, you've got it wrong, and, and I'm going to tell you that you've got to go and look at it again. I, that's why I think the whole organisation of it is wrong. I think it's, there's two jobs here, isn't there, Darren? You should be a VAR or you should be a referee. Never the twain shall mix. Absolutely. I mean, listen, the Crook asked a question about whether it, John Moss's farewell appearance. What difference does it make? The game is about what happens on the pitch, not anyone's ego. You know, you give a penalty if it's a penalty the first minute of the game or the last and I just think that I remember Scott Parker, basically the Fulham manager, saying that he'd fallen out of love with the game because it's so different from the game we all fell in love with, the basic organic game before it started morphing into interpretations and guidance and people who'd never kicked a ball in their lives sitting in a room trying to decide what a referee should do. And I think that at the moment, what we have is the evidence of our own eyes, <clears throat> our own experienced eyes. And I'm not just talking about us who watch the game for a living, but I'm talking about the people listening to this, the fans who go week in, week out and know the difference between a dive and a foul. And, and, and we've got the sanitized version of football that we're seeing at the moment. And I think in very simple terms, what we're seeing time and again, I go back to ever since uh, Aston Villa, I think it was, had a goal ruled out. The ball was over the line, practically behind the post in the first match after the lockdown. Sorry, Sheffield United yeah. in the game against Aston Villa. And Michael Oliver, rather than using the evidence of his own eyes, relied on the VAR who wrongly told him he hadn't crossed the line. That was the GDS the, system that fouled, wasn't it? A litany of systems, a litany of, of, of situations um, where the, the clear evidence to the contrary has been denied by the people who are using the technology that we called for for so long to be able to help out in situations like this. And, and what we're seeing now is not really a VAR system, but a PR system. How can we best defend bad decision-making on the pitch? And that's what we're seeing with this. I feel so sorry for Huddersfield and the other teams will be affected in the same way next season because we're, we're just continuing to defend the indefensible. Uh, the good news for Charlotte is, is that she only moved to the uh, the Times to be the Midlands correspondent about, uh, what, eight weeks ago? And you've already picked up another club. So that's good for you in the Premier League. <laughs> Can't wait. Great for you. Got <laughs> oh, enough workload already. Extra so work. We love get it. Get another one in for me. <laughs> uh, listen, thanks very much for coming on. We appreciate it. That's the time, Sir Charlotte Dunker. Thanks to Alex Brook as well, who's joined us from Portugal. Um, my internal phone's ringing, so I better get that before uh, my flight takes off uh, without me. Uh, Darren, thank you very much. Thank you. 
See you later. Uh, Game Day Podcast is back uh, this Thursday afternoon uh, when we're looking ahead towards the, uh, yeah, the big one. England against Hungary. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds, we set them. Form guides, we've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18+, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertzen the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertzen the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how.